Today we are beginning a new study through the biblical account of the life of Joseph uh, and also the rest of Joseph's family. There's a lot of uh, intertwining of the stories as we go through, uh, but we'll see some of God's work through this godly man who is used uh, to uh, save, that's with a, uh, a lowercase s, uh, to save and deliver uh, God's covenant people. And so for the next few weeks, Lord willing, we're going to be looking through Genesis chapter 37 through chapter 50, the end of the book. And let me give you a warning that as we move from our teaching through 1 Corinthians uh, to Genesis, there is a certain necessity when we go through narrative that the pace is a little bit different. So we're going to read big chunks. Uh, Today we're looking, Lord willing, at 36 verses together. That's much different than our pace through 1 Corinthians. We would have been done with 1 Corinthians very quick, uh, very quickly if we did it that way. Uh, But we... We also have a certain necessity when we move through narrative that we've got to fly at 36,000 feet uh, and pick up the pieces as we can go along. So Lord willing, that's what we're going to do today uh, and see something of what the Lord has for us. Today in Genesis chapter 37, the beginning of this series uh, on the account of Joseph and his family. You can find that if you picked up an ESV on the way in on page 31 of our cart Bibles. Again, we'll read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 36, and before we do that, Please join me in prayer before the Lord. O Lord, our God, mover of time and space in history, maker of all that is, thank you for the work that you have done in your people and in this family which you called to yourself and gave promises. Joseph, one of the sons of Abraham by lineage, and we, sons of Abraham by faith, join us together in heart and mind and spirit before your word today, to see your promises for us, to recognize your goodness, and to see your steadfastness even in the midst of our trial and our struggle, just as you show yourself faithful to Joseph, and we'll see that in the coming weeks. And so guide us and direct us, be our shepherd through this passage and through these weeks and this study. Speak to us, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 36. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. 
and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now. See if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. 
Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he indeed add a blessing to the reading and to the hearing. The story is often told, even though there's no evidence that it actually happened. The story is told of the man who asked the sculptor, Michelangelo, how it was that he was able to carve his great masterpiece, David, an enormous, imposing, white marble statue. How could you do it, maestro, he asked. And and the story, again, is that uh, Michelangelo answered, well, simple. I just removed everything that was not David. Again, there's there's no evidence uh, that this actually happened, but we like to tell the story, and it sounds good to us. It sounds almost magical. As though Michelangelo, with one whimsical swipe of the chisel and the hammer, uh, suddenly this, uh, this David emerged in full form. It sounds good to us mere mortals who can't imagine uh, doing such a thing and creating such a masterpiece, but the truth is actually much more complicated. The David statue was commissioned 11 years before Michelangelo was born, 1464. And by the time Michelangelo ever set chisel to the work, two other artists had begun and abandoned the same project. And they said that the block of marble that the town council of Florence had procured had far too many imperfections to be turned into a sculpture of that type. And so they left it. And it sat neglected for 26 years until Michelangelo began in 1501. And for over two years, he worked on it from 1501 to 1504, two and a half years. He worked almost ceaselessly. As biographers describe him at the time, sleeping very little, maybe a few hours a day, often still in his clothes and in his boots so he could wake up and get back to work. And he ate very little. He was in almost complete isolation because he didn't want anyone to see the masterpiece. And he worked outside, so when it rained, he and David got very, very wet. You see, the truth is that it takes a lot of hard work Even with all of his artistic genius, it takes a lot of hard work to create that masterpiece. And there are smashed knuckles and bruised fingers and long sleepless nights to show for it. There's toil and there's struggle and there's suffering to create that masterpiece. Yet all of that toil is nothing compared to what the Lord does to create and to fashion and to shape his people into the image of Jesus Christ. This is what Ephesians tells us, that we are God's workmanship, his masterpiece, if you will. That is the goal for which Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice to cleanse us from all of our imperfections, to carve and chisel them away by his blood, to remove the stain of sin from us. And even after that sacrifice, and even after that cleansing, the Lord continues his refining work by the Spirit. And sometimes it feels like a chisel. And there are years and there's a lifetime of toil and struggle and disappointment in affliction, but none of it is wasted in the hands of the master as he shapes his people. That's easy to say while we read about Joseph and his struggle. 
It's easy to say that suffering is not wasted in God's hand because we know the end of the story of Joseph. We know how it all turns out and what the Lord is going to do. And we know what what Joseph and his brothers don't yet know. That God was working all things together for their good, through their struggles and their sins and their schemes. And we know the end of the story. So I wonder what counsel you would give to Joseph If you were with him there, next to him in that pit, in the midst of despair, are they going to kill me? Are they going to sell me? What are they going to do? They're not just going to leave me here, are they? What would you tell Joseph? What would you tell Jacob as he mourns and clutches that blood-soaked robe to his face and his cheeks stream with tears and he thinks that his son has been devoured? What would you tell Jacob about all that suffering? Or maybe it's the same thing they would tell you in your sufferings. As you wring your hands and try to make sense of what the Lord is doing in your life, and you have no more knowledge of how your story is going to turn out than Joseph did while he was in that pit. And you don't know what the end will look like. You see, it's different when you're the one who's doing the struggling. At least it feels different. But God is the same artist, He's the same workman and the same master, and his masterpieces always turn out according to the same principle and the same picture. It's the image of Christ. And the Lord will spare no expense and no struggle and no suffering in shaping his people after the image of his son. I think that's what Joseph would tell us if he could speak to us from the end of his account. That the suffering of believers is never wasted in the hands of God. That's what we see today in this passage. This is a story of suffering, and at times it will seem a little too close to home, I'm sure. But what we see through this picture of suffering is the Lord who is shaping his people after the image of Christ, and we're going to see that show up in three different scenes. As you see, God's work in the midst of Joseph's suffering is we're reminded of God's work in the midst of our sufferings. The first scene zeroes in from from verse 1 through 11, zeroes in on hatred. It's the hatred of Joseph's brothers against him. And this, again, is a family story. This is where Joseph's suffering begins, sadly. It begins not out there in the world somewhere, but close to home with his family. This, after all, the, the whole book of Genesis is an account of a family. It's been showing us God's work and his promises and his labors with one family that he would create and zero in on and give his promises to. And throughout the story, it's not just about Joseph. It's Joseph and Jacob, and their lives are intertwined. And we'll see both of their lives come to an end in the last section in chapter 50. And so it's, it's all this family together. And even Judah, at one point, gets the chance to play the hero. So in Genesis chapter 37 through 50, this is a family story. There are dreams and there are famines and there is politics and there are plots, but all of it is about God's family, his people. And in this chapter, it's even more explicit. It's not just the whole family, but it's the relationship of the brothers. That's a key word that shows up in this chapter 15 times. The word brother or brothers shows up in different contexts. Now, 
We've just come from studying 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the word brothers, and it is dripping with honey. He has, at some times, he has to uh, rebuke them, correct them. And yet he does it very often by saying, now, my beloved brothers, I say this because I love you. You're, you're my brothers in Christ. That's the way Paul used it, but there is none of that in this story here. When the word brother shows up for Joseph, it's dripping not with honey, but with arsenic. It is bitter. It's almost sarcastic the way that it shows up. You can imagine Joseph laid out on the psychiatrist's couch, and he says, Joseph, tell me about your relationship with your brothers. I don't think we have enough time. That's complicated. And it is complicated because the prime thing that we learn about Joseph's brothers in this chapter is that they hate Joseph. That's what we learn about them. They hate their brother. Not entirely without a cause. This is, you know, there are a few provocations as we go along and things that we see that would lead them to at least dislike their brother and maybe even to hate there is, for example, this bad report that Joseph brings about his brothers. Here at the beginning, we need to make a decision about Joseph. We need to decide if Joseph is the dutiful son or the bratty tattletale. That's generally the way that the decision goes. I think the latter actually is a lot closer to the text. Yes, he had a responsibility to his father, and he was assigned to help his brothers, but in the Old Testament, this word for report is always negative always negative. This is spinning the truth to your own advantage. It's slander. It's gossip. It's the 10 of 12 spies coming back from looking at the promised land, and they brought a bad report. And they said, oh, we don't want to go in there. And you can imagine, maybe, two-faced, immature Joseph. He's with his brothers, his half-brothers, really, sons of concubines. They're not really brothers he thinks, maybe. I mean, he's out there with them, and he's playing nice, but, you know, when they come back, you can see him running off to whisper in Jacob's ear and make sure that everything turns out in his favor, and they're the ones who get blamed for whatever it was that happened out there, and he brings this bad report. And, of course, they dislike him. He's a tattletale. And his brattiness is compounded by the fact that everybody knows that Joseph is the golden boy. He's Jacob's favorite. Now, you would think that Jacob would know better. You think back to Jacob's family and his story and all the turmoil that happened because one parent had their favorite son and the other favored the other and everything that happened. You would think Jacob would know better or at least that he wouldn't show it so blatantly, but he doesn't know better, and he does show it, and he gives this extravagant robe to his favored son. There's a footnote in your text. We don't know if it was very colorful. We know that in some way it was ornamented, it was different. Uh, the word itself only shows up in one other context, and it speaks of a royal robe that the virgin daughters of King David would wear. It shows up in 2 Samuel. And so it's some sort of ornamental robe. Maybe, maybe the sleeves and the hem were longer, because Joseph wasn't expected to do the hard labor, so he could have... a a more flowing gown than the men who had to be out and girding their loins all the time. We don't know what it looked like, but we know what it said to the brothers. 
to the brothers, this robe said, Joseph is my favorite. Joseph is the beloved son. Joseph can do no wrong. And they hate him. Oh, they hate him. And they hate him more, and they hate him more, and they hate him more. And if it wasn't bad enough, he has these dreams. You might expect dreams to blow over. No big deal, right? His brothers aren't foolish. They know that these are not just stream of subconsciousness, sort of, oh, here's what I was thinking last night. They know the family story. They know that God spoke to their father, Jacob, through dreams. He spoke to him at Bethel and spoke to him again to bring him back into Canaan. And it seems now Joseph is the one who is receiving this communication from the Lord, and it comes twice, which Joseph will tell later to Pharaoh, when the Lord gives you the same dream twice, that means it's going to happen. It's a sure thing. And so they know. And if it wasn't bad enough that Joseph was a brat and he was Jacob's favorite, even God seemed to be showing preference for Joseph. And they hate him, and they hate him more, and they hate him more, and they're jealous of Joseph. That's what it tells us in the passage. They were jealous. And it's like building a campfire out in the woods. You've got to gather your small sticks. You've got to separate them in different sizes, and you start with your small sticks and your leaf tinder and all these little pieces of dry grass that you can get going, and then once that's going a little bit and there's a flame, you you add in the bigger sticks and then maybe a few branches, and, and not until much later can you put on the log, but then you'll have embers that can go and can sustain the fire long after, and you can go out and gather more firewood and it'll just still be there smoldering. This is what this hatred is doing in his brother's lives. It's building, and it's building, and it's glowing red hot at the center. And they are jealous of their brother. This is the beginning of Joseph's suffering. Here with his family. Here in the hatred of his brothers. It's also the beginning of God's shaping. God is going to use this to shape Joseph and Judah and all the rest of the brothers. And by the end of the account, we're going to see them acknowledging God's faithfulness and his goodness, and recognizing their sin, recognizing that cancer of hatred eating away in their hearts against their brother. This is the beginning of God's work, even through suffering. Now, when we read accounts like this, our general tendency is to see ourselves and to identify ourselves with the protagonist. And so we read of David and Goliath, and we imagine ourselves holding a sling and gathering our five stones. We read of Daniel and the lion's den, and we want to dare to be a Daniel. And there's some of that here in this passage. There's some identification with Joseph's suffering. There's an encouragement here for you that God is able to work in a family as dysfunctional as Joseph's family, and that means that God is able to bring good things out of a family maybe as dysfunctional as your family. Maybe when you gather together around the dinner table, even, week by week, or when you go to extended family gatherings and you feel like there's a kick-me sign on your back and there's a target on you and you're an outsider and no one wants anything to do with you, the Lord is able to use that and he's able to shape you through that and to shape your family. 
The Lord is the Lord who is able to restore relationships and to to unwind all the knots that our sin has tied around us and those who are around us. God is faithful to do these things. We also need to remember the way that passages like this expose us. The sins that are close to our hearts. And there's a warning here. Look out for that root of bitterness that grows quietly under the surface and spreads, though you may not notice it at first. Look out for that jealousy that tempts you to think that God shows favoritism to some of his children and he's neglecting you because he's so busy doting on them. That sometimes happens. In unexpected ways and unexpected circumstances. It's the young couple who desperately wishes that they could have a child and a family. Maybe the timing's not right. Maybe they're struggling with infertility. Maybe they've even had a miscarriage or three. And it seems like everyone else is having their kids and everybody you know is pregnant. And when will the Lord answer our prayers? And you're tempted to think maybe they're the favorites. Maybe God's turned his back on me. Maybe he's like the fathers that we know in this world who have their favorites and give all their gifts and all their accolades to just one, and maybe I'm second rate. Watch out for the jealousy that will twist your heart to say that and to think that about the Lord. Well, even as Joseph is drowning in the hatred of his brothers, we begin to see God's work in his life. We begin to see God shaping and molding him after the image of Jesus. The second scene that we find, verses 12 through 17, zeroes in on the obedience of Joseph. We've seen the hatred of the brothers and now the obedience of Joseph. And these verses, I think, are a promise for us. We're beginning to see godly character. We're beginning to see maturity in Joseph, the sign that the Lord is working. Because, folks, as you read through these verses and the request that's made, all earthly wisdom, all worldly wisdom ought to have told Joseph, don't go looking for your brothers. This is the worst thing you could do. Think about it. His father sends him to look for peace where we've already been told there is no peace. This is literally what it says in verse 14. Go and see if there is peace with your brothers. Go and see if they have any shalom. Go and see if there's peace with the flock. It makes you wonder how oblivious Jacob was. He didn't see what was happening in his own household right under his nose. And he sends out Joseph. Go and see if there's peace with them. Well, there's no peace for Joseph. Joseph is a wet blanket. He comes down in the morning and everybody's sitting at breakfast and conversation stops. Joseph sits down and everybody stands up. Joseph goes out with the flock and they all come in. They want nothing to do with Joseph. There's no peace for Joseph. And he sends them out to look for peace where none can be found. And of all places, he sends them to Shechem. Maybe Shechem doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but it meant a whole lot to Jacob and to his family. Three times, even though that's not actually where Joseph finds his brothers, but it draws our attention to Shechem and the fact that that's where his brothers were and that's where his father was sending him. But back in Genesis chapter 34, Shechem was the place where Levi and Simeon had their revenge. 
their sister had been abused and raped by Shechem. And their father, again, indifferent, seemed to turn uh, his eyes in the other direction and had nothing to do with it. And so you remember the plot. We won't go all the way into it. They convinced the men of the town of Shechem to become circumcised so they could share daughters and intermarry. And they did. And on the third day, when all the men of Shechem were at home convalescing, they swoop down and they kill every single one of them. They take away their wives and their children, their flocks and their herds. What was Shechem? Shechem was the place that Jacob said his name still stunk in the inhabitants of the land. Shechem was the place where Joseph was reminded just how ruthless, just how murderous, just how conniving his brothers could be. Shechem was a dangerous place because Joseph's brothers were dangerous men. And Jacob says, go to Shechem of all places and see if there's any peace with your brothers. Oh, and by the way, when you've checked in on them, come tell me how they're doing. Bring me back word. I want to know everything they've said, Joseph. Oh, Joseph can do that. That's why they hate him already. Now, we know Joseph is 17. We can only guess at how old his other brothers are. Maybe there's at least a gap of 13 years between Joseph and his oldest brother, Reuben. But they're all certainly, at least some of them, grown men with wives and families and children of their own, maybe children almost as old as Joseph. And here comes Joseph, young and inexperienced in his fancy robe. He's probably doing that thing at that time where he's trying to grow a beard because that's what men did, but it's coming in all patchy and it really just makes him look even more immature. And here comes Joseph and he's going to say to them, Dad wants me to check on you. You guys okay? I'm just watching out. I'm just making sure that you're all right. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here for your benefit, really. I'm here to help you guys. Now, Jacob says, go to Shechem. See if there's shalom with your brothers and bring me word. And everyone reading this story ought to say, Joseph, don't go. That's the dumbest thing you could do, Joseph. Don't obey your father. Don't go into that trap. Don't set yourself to these things. And what does Joseph say? Here I am. He's obedient. He is eagerly obedient. That's what godly men and women throughout the scripture say to the Lord when he calls them. Abraham, here I am. Moses, that's me. Samuel, here I am, Lord. Mary, I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. May it be to me as you have said. And, and Joseph says, here I am. And he goes. He walks 50 miles to Shechem. He walks another 15 miles to Dothan, looking for his brothers, and he obeys. Despite the prospect of persecution, despite the danger, despite his suffering, the Lord is growing him. And you can see it in his obedience. A little spark of maturity in this man who will come to be second in command in Egypt. And maybe that's not the way Joseph saw it. It's certainly the way that Stephen saw it. Turn with me to the New Testament book of Acts. Acts chapter 7. Page 914 in your ESVs. Acts chapter 7. Uh, this is Stephen's speech of defense before the Jewish council. And in this speech, Stephen begins to give them a pattern that he sees 
And he begins to exegete the Old Testament of the way that God was bringing deliverance and salvation, again, small s, small d, deliverance and salvation through righteous men who are rejected by God's own people. And he sees this pattern going through the Old Testament, and Joseph is a part of that pattern. Acts chapter 7, verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. You see, Joseph is part of that pattern. God working deliverance through righteous men, even though they were rejected. And then he, he traces that pattern through Moses and David and Solomon, and then he culminates with this condemnation in verse 51. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, remember he called them the patriarchs, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of your prophets did not your fathers persecute? You see, the pattern that Stephen, Stephen saw was including Joseph. And then he brought it all the way to Jesus. You see, Joseph was a man who was conformed to the image of Christ. Here's what he says. And they, that is your fathers, they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So what are we supposed to see in Joseph's obedience? We're meant to see the picture of Jesus. We're meant to see the way that God is shaping Joseph even through the hatred of his brothers, even through the suffering that he's about to endure, God is shaping him despite the rejection of men. We're supposed to see in Joseph a picture of the one who would come to do the will of the Father, to seek brothers and sisters from among those who hate his rule and are faced with animosity against the Lord. He comes seeking peace where in all worldly wisdom, there is no peace to be found. That's what Jesus did. This is what we're supposed to see in Joseph. And Jesus came, and he suffered, and he gave himself, and he was obedient, even though his obedience cost him everything. Now, what does that mean? It means that for you and for me to recognize God's work in our lives means that we will probably, most likely, very likely, be conformed to the same pattern. That God will grow us and shape us to recognize the gift of obedience and the goodness of obedience and the grace of obedience, even through suffering. That was the way that he worked in Joseph. That was the way that he worked in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that is the way he will work in you. Now back in Genesis 37, one last scene. And we find Joseph's suffering is about to get worse with his brothers. The final scene zeroes in on conspiracy. This is the, uh, the word that heads it out in verse 18. They conspired against him. And Joseph suffers at their hands. And this is really a, a dark point in the history of God's people. For the rest of this chapter, it's, it's not just one conspiracy, but it's one conspiracy on top of another conspiracy, on top of deception, on top of deception, upon lie and sin and plots and schemes. And there is real suffering in the remainder of this chapter, not just for Joseph, but for his family and for his father. And despite the immediate suffering, what you need to see is that every single conspiracy was a humiliating failure. 
because it didn't meet the ends that the men who were, who were conspiring and plotting, it, it didn't do what they thought it would do because God was using all of this suffering to shape Joseph. Here's the final scene. It's the failure of conspiracy. What are the conspiracies that we see here? Well, we see the conspiracy of death. That's the first one. Let's put him to death. Let's kill him. And by the way, let's kill his dreams. He can't be allowed to, to take the upper uh, step, and, and we will not bow before him. And in fact, we just want to get rid of him. We hate him and his dreams so much that we want to be done with him. We don't want to see him. We don't want to think about him. We don't want to hear his voice. Let's get rid of him. Let's kill him. And the plan changes a little bit as they go along. But the goal is always the same. Let's be rid of Joseph. Now, we'll only have to read a few more chapters to see how this one failed. And three times before chapter 50, they will come and they will bow themselves before Joseph. And the dreams will be fulfilled as the Lord has already said. But even when he's gone, even when they think that their conspiracy has worked, they're still not rid of Joseph. He's still not gone as they thought he would be gone. Flip over to chapter 42. This is the brothers in their first appearance in Egypt. Chapter 42, verse 21. It's on the second page of that chapter in your ESVs. They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw his distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? You wouldn't listen. Now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They're not rid of Joseph. He's not gone from their memory 22 years later. Their consciences are sensitive. It's like that game, Operation. A little board game, and you've got to get the tweezers in that little hole, and you've got to get the bones out. And if you move just one iota in the wrong direction, the nose lights up, and the whole thing buzzes, and then you jump. For 22 years, Joseph's brothers have been jumping at every little thing. Now there comes a reckoning. We thought we'd be done. We thought our conspiracy would work. We thought we'd be rid of Joseph, but he continues to haunt us. And that's the way conspiracy works, and that's the way it fails very often, friends. It's that telltale heart thumping under the floorboards. It's those brothers who go out into the pastures on lonely nights, and they can still hear his screams. It's that middle-aged woman who still has nightmares of the child she aborted when she was 17. Oh, conspiracy doesn't go quietly into the night. And this was a terrible failure. It's conspiracy of death. And then there's the conspiracy of rescue. Oh, here's Reuben wanting to play the hero. But he doesn't want to ruffle any feathers, you know. Reuben, this, this really was his duty as the eldest of the sons, and there's some indication that he was falling out of grace with his father from something he did. A dastardly thing, a, a disgusting thing that he did. After Rachel's death, he approached one of the concubine wives of his father, and he went to bed with her. In that, that context, it was kind of a mutiny. It's kind of saying, I'm the one who ought to be in charge. That's what Absalom did with his, his father, David. 
and he took all of his wives. And Reuben had done the same thing. And there's some sense that, that what Reuben wants is to save Joseph, but not because he cares about Joseph. Because he wants to restore him to his father. And he doesn't care about Joseph enough to stand up to his younger brothers and tell them what they ought to do and the right thing to do. And so he just, I'll just get them not to kill him. And then later, when, when they're all doing something else, I'll come back, I'll pull him up, I'll be the hero, everybody will sing my name. And then Moses, one day, when he's writing down the account, he'll say, and wasn't Reuben grand? Wasn't he great? And he, he was really the hero, wasn't he? And so Reuben is off, who knows where, pretending to be nonchalant, and Joseph is sold for a slave in Egypt. He finally comes back, the truth out. Reuben didn't care about Joseph. He tears his clothes, and what does he say? The boy is gone, and I, where am I to go? What is left for me now that the boy is gone? You go south, Reuben. That's where the Midianites went. You know where the trade route is. You follow them. You dig deep into your pocketbooks. You pull out 25 shekels of silver, and you buy him back. Oh, no, no, no. He, he doesn't want it that much. He just wants his father's accolation and care. And so that one is a, a terrible, humiliating uh, failure. And then there's the conspiracy of compassion. This one's just pathetic. Here's Judah. Oh, no, no, no. He, come on, guys. He's our brother. He's our, he's our own flesh. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him. And they all went home probably congratulating themselves for how merciful they were. It's a really good thing. We didn't kill him ourselves, you know? That, that would have been too far. But we took the high road. We sold him into slavery. I, I bet he'll have a great time in Egypt. It'll be wonderful. And for 3,500 years, God's people have been reading these words and shaking their head and chuckling at Judah. How silly to take your greed and to paint over it with a little air of compassion and to think that you can fool anyone other than yourself. That's all it was. Another failed conspiracy. And then the last conspiracy, and this one probably the most gut-wrenching of all of their crimes. It's this conspiracy of deception against their father. And you can tell by the way that they try to distance themselves from what they've done. Now, when they're against Joseph, no big deal. Put him in the hole, go have lunch. You can probably hear him from wherever he is. And that's what they say in chapter 42. We heard his cries and we didn't answer. But with their father, they can't even stand to look the old man in the eye when he gets the news. They send the robe. They have it brought to him. That's what it says in the Hebrew. They have it brought. And it goes to him by the hand of some messenger. And the messenger says, do you recognize this? Have you ever seen this before? Does this belong to your son? Not our brother, not Joseph. Does this belong to your son? There's something ironic here, isn't there? The fact that Jacob, so many decades before, had deceived his own father with a borrowed cloak and a goat. And now his own conspiracy is being paid upon his own head. And they say, maybe this is Joseph, we're not sure. Help us out here, Dad. And then the worst of all, the final straw, those callous, murderous, hateful brothers, it says they rose up to comfort their father. 
wonder what they said to him? wonder if maybe they sat around sharing old stories and memories. Oh, Joseph, he was a good kid. I wonder if maybe on his birthday every year, one of the brothers would stand up at dinner and they'd make a toast to Joseph. If it wasn't for that, uh, that beast that tore him apart, maybe they consoled their father. It's okay. It was a long journey, and, and you sent him out all on his own. Who knows what would have happened? Don't beat yourself up, Dad. It's okay. Don't be too hard on yourself. I wonder what they said to him. And yet in a matter of years, this is all going to come crashing down because they're going to have to come back and they're going to have to look him in the eye. They're going to come with cartloads of provisions from the son he thought was dead, and they're going to have to say, Hey, Dad, remember when we gave you that robe? Remember all those years we, we told you that it wasn't your fault. We need to talk. It's all going to come crashing down. You see, the whole thing is one failed deception after another. They tried to deceive they, their father. They tried to deceive one another. They tried to deceive themselves. And the whole string of conspiracies was powerless to undo the good that God had already ordained he would be doing for this family. He's working together for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose. So what application can we take from this final scene? Again, this moves in two directions. One, there's a warning not to be like the brothers. Don't fool yourself into thinking that just a little bit of conspiracy, just a little bit of deception will set everything right and you'll be rid of everything that pesters you. Beware of engaging in anything that is built upon a foundation of lying to yourself or lying to someone else or lying to the Lord. Truth will out. Maybe someday now, maybe someday as you stand before the Lord and everyone will have to give account for every word spoken. Do not be like these deceitful brothers. But there is an encouragement. The encouragement is that God's sovereignty cannot be undone by the schemes of men. At every turn, the details of these plots were in the hand of the Lord. These were the circumstances that God was using to move Joseph to where he could be most used by God. And while his father mourns, and while his brothers deal with their unexpected guilt, Joseph is exactly where the Lord wants him. Yes, things are going to get much worse before they get any better. And yes, the Lord could have done it in any other way. He could have sent another dream. He could have told them to pick up and move. He could have gotten them to Egypt in any way he decided was fit. But the Lord chose suffering. And the Lord works through suffering, orchestrating the circumstances of the deliverance of his people. This is God's sovereignty in the minutia of life. Not just big picture things, but little things. Joseph wastes time in a field somewhere. And his brothers bicker over what to do with him, and they sit down to eat. And oh, look, Midianite traders at just the right time. God is working everything out. And I think as Moses was writing this account so many years later, he probably had a chuckle to himself. To think of all the ways that the schemes of men, and, and men plot together against what the Lord has ordained, and the things that he's doing, and they think 
that they can get ahead, but all of their plots end up playing into his own hand. I think Moses had a little chuckle. When he was done laughing, I think Moses bowed his head in worship. He bowed his head in worship to the God whose will is always done, and whose plans are forever sure and true. Oh, I think that's what Joseph would tell you today. Those of you who are suffering, maybe even those of you who are suffering because of somebody else's sin, somebody else's hatred and deception and lies, I think Joseph would speak to you from the end of the story that you don't yet see, and he would remind you of the Savior who learned obedience through what he suffered. And he'd tell you to believe, He might tell you to repent. He'd tell you to persevere, but he would tell you to guard your heart with God's promises because the suffering of believers is never wasted in God's hands. Please join me as we pray. Lord our God, you who have made the heavens and the earth, you who do all things wonderfully and perfectly and true, Oh, guard us by the grace of your Lord, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us eyes to see him in his suffering, in his sacrifice. And give us your spirit to cause us to persevere in whatever suffering and affliction you have for us, to be faithful unto the end, because we know that you have given your Son for us and will give us all things in him, and you keep us, and nothing can separate us from your love. And so guard our hearts, we pray in Jesus Christ, by your peace. We ask in his name. Amen.